Good morning, Hillside, and I am so glad that you are with us this morning and so glad about all the great news that we're hearing from our government that uh, things are beginning to open up and restrictions are being lifted. Today's a huge day. As Sonia mentioned, we're having an outdoor service, and it looks like a perfect day. It's not too rainy. It's not too sunny. Uh, it's perfect for us. Um, we don't know what the future holds, but we are aiming towards where our staff are planning towards in-person services again, and so I want you to know that. Um, I know that this has been a season where maybe some of us have gotten really comfortable watching church in our pajamas and not doing any makeup or hair. Like, I've, I've really appreciated that. But uh, honestly, uh, we're never meant to live kind of an isolated Christian life. And so I hope that you're excited about returning and seeing each other and worshiping together as God intended for us to, to gather together there's a strength in that. Um, you may feel like your part doesn't matter, but uh, somehow uh, your encouragement to me and my encouragement to you, it just strengthens our faith. And so do whatever you need to do in these days to kind of get your heart ready for returning. And uh, let's do that. And so we'll keep you posted on those announcements. So watch our news this week, our e-reminders, uh, which will keep you updated on on services and, and what's happening. So, because things are changing by the day, it seems like. So, really good news. If you have a Bible this morning or a Bible app, you can turn there right now to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We're continuing on in our series on the gospel according to Matthew. We're heading back to a passage that we missed a few weeks ago. Uh, we had a, an interruption in our planning but uh, we didn't want to miss it. It's an incredibly significant teaching of Jesus we need to pay attention to, to, especially if we want to understand Jesus and if we want to understand the rest of his teaching. So Matthew 5, verse 17 and uh, following. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, this morning, uh, we pray to take these words of Jesus, um, illuminate our hearts and speak to them, that we might be able to live according to your word uh, and uh, that we meet, might thrive in you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this teaching is about the Bible. You know the Bible, right? Best-selling book of all time. Uh, the total uh, number of books were written over approximately 1,500 years, 2,000 years ago. Here we are. We're still, you know, studying it, reading it, looking at it from Sunday to Sunday, and for good reason. I agree with the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who is a very well-read guy, who said, a single line in the Bible has comforted me or consoled me more than all the other books I have read besides. 
And, and so there's something about this book that we keep coming back to again and again. Probably because, as John Mark Comer, a pastor, points out, is that the Bible is all about God, but it's also all about us. I mean, everything is in there, all about our human condition. There's love, hate, war, the futility of violence to solve our problems, injustice, racism, what happens to a society with a widening gap between the rich and the poor, what happens when the church goes astray, gets off track, and, and kind of goes with the flow of the culture. There's trauma, there's healing, there's the meaning and purpose of life, there's mortality, how, how just how brief life is. What to do with mold in your kitchen, because you wanted to know, right? That's in there. How to discipline your toddler, Derek and Corey. Uh, sex in every way, shape, or form. End times, doubt, unbelief, faith, doctrine. It's all in there. All that said, lots of people, uh, maybe an increasing number of people, have a lot of problems with the Bible, they find it perplexing or boring or, or hard to understand or they have real trouble with it, maybe even taking offense at it, uh, maybe especially the Old Testament, but even, truth be told, the New Testament, which has quite a few things that challenge our modern sensibilities. I, I had a conversation with a friend this week in a, in a coffee shop, and they shared how they walked away from the sort of faith of their childhood, uh, the faith they grew up in, they, they described their, their family as being a, a strict reliance on the Bible. That was her words. And I don't know what her issues were specifically, but I know that she is not alone in having questions about the Bible. And, and, and so it's important as we, we carry on with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his most important sermon, that we come to this core passage where we get Jesus' take on the Bible. And as we seek to follow Jesus and consider how we can be faithful to Jesus, here we begin to learn how to read the Bible through Jesus' eyes, or let, read it like Jesus. Let's walk through the passage one verse at a time. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, in Jesus' day, they didn't have the New Testament they only had what we think of as the Old Testament, a collection of books and scrolls. They were often kind of nicknamed or called the Law or the Prophets. It was roughly categorized into three different groups. You had the Torah, which were the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then you had the Prophets and the history writings. So you have books like the Samuels and the Chronicles and... Uh, then you had the prophets like um, uh, the major prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the minor prophets like Nahum and Habakkuk and crazy names like that. Another category that Jesus quotes from a lot were, were called the writings or the wisdom literature, things like Song of Solomon, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. All of this is what we think of as the Old Testament or the First Testament as one of my seminary professors was fond to call it. Jesus goes on to say in the second half of verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Abolish in Greek, and in English actually, is a strong word, right? It actually kind of means to demolish, to uh, tear down, to get rid of, to, to set aside. 
And we don't kind of get the backstory on this, but apparently some people in Jesus' day thought Jesus' teaching was so radical, was kind of so extreme or upside down that he'd come to obviously abolish or get rid of the Bible. And Jesus wants to make it really clear that that is not what he has come to do. I've not come to abolish Scripture, but to fulfill Scripture. Fulfill in, in the Greek is pleurosi. And Matthew uses this word all throughout his gospel to describe anytime there's kind of this pattern or prophecy that has been fulfilled through Jesus, an Old Testament prophecy. Example, uh, and I've listed a bunch of them in your sermon notes, but in Matthew 26, as Jesus is being arrested, he kind of calms his disciples with these words. He says, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. So for Jesus, the teachings of the Old Testament weren't kind of the final word of what God had to say. God's final word is Jesus. They were, they were pointing, those words in the Old Testament were pointing to himself. It's a fascinating experience to actually read the Old Testament from that framework, how it looks ahead to Jesus. And Jesus is challenging his followers now to read the Bible in light of his coming. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, I, I grew up with not a jot or a tittle, was, was how I heard it in the King James Version. <laughs> Had no idea what a tittle was. But uh, he says, not, not a jot or a tittle or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Je Jesus was saying that the Bible, down to the smallest detail, will last until everything is accomplished. Well, which leads to the question, what, till what has been accomplished? Again, Jesus makes it really clear that he's the signpost that the fulfillment of, of Scripture. It's, it's me. He's like, you know, it's all pointing to me. And so you have these moments where Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, the, the day that he's risen from the dead, he's got a couple of his disciples who are walking along downcast and confused. And Jesus sidles up along and walks with them. And he asks them what's going on, and they tell him about Jesus who'd been crucified and, and risen. And he begins to unpack the Old Testament with them, explaining how that's how it had to be. He reframed their understanding of Scripture by the experience of the cross and the resurrection. And we know that so much of uh, the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection. More on that next week. Verse 19, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now what commands was Jesus referring to? Uh, part of it would have been uh, Old Testament commands, and, and then commands he was about to teach in the Sermon on the Mount, which, when you think about it, the Sermon on the Mount was really Jesus' teaching on the Old Testament. And so by how Jesus handles these commands, we get a, a really insightful window on how Jesus reads the Bible. But he says, anyone who sets aside or explains away or has a kind of a very loose approach to Scripture, 
It's, if that's your, your kind of approach to the Bible, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. On the other side, those who practice and who take these commands seriously, in other words, you, 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 you take Jesus' lead in how to read it and live it and practice it in your life and obey it, this you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I, I like one pastor's conclusion on this, how there seems to be some kind of reciprocal relationship between how you treat the Bible and how you experience God and his kingdom. Jesus could have finished his thought there, but he goes on to say something quite profound and kind of rattling, if you think about it. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, righteousness is a word that Matthew often kind of hints at or means goodness, unless your righteousness, your goodness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we read this and we might not kind of notice the bomb that Jesus just dropped. Because uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, as they're often called, the, the Sadducees, the, these teachers of the law were like the professional Bible readers and scholars and students of their day. They knew the book. They were known for their passion for the book, for their knowledge and their commitment to keeping the law. And so this comment from Jesus would have made no sense to those hearers at all. Like as if Jesus had said today, you know, unless your righteousness surpasses that of like Billy Graham or, or Mother Teresa or Timothy Keller or Beth Moore, you know, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, what? Easy talk, which, which makes you wonder, does this mean that Jesus wants us to be even more hardcore about the Bible than they were? Like some version of Bible thumping? Um, some of you don't even know what the phrase Bible thumping means. <laughs> it was uh, some Christians were accused of being Bible thumpers back when I was a youth. It was a common phrase. The image for me, I was uh, sitting a few years ago in a, a second story of a university library, and I was by the window and looking down on kind of the main walkway of the university campus, and uh, people were walking back and forth, and there was a guy there, and honestly, a bit of an odd duck, and uh, he had an open Bible in his hands, and he was shouting scripture at people, kind of in their face, like almost spitting scripture at them as they were walking by. That's my image of a Bible thumper, somebody who kind of thumps other people with the Bible, right? But I suspect from what we know of Jesus that that's not quite what he's after. When you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and, and the Sermon on the Mount, you realize Jesus, when he talks about having a surpassing righteousness, he's talking about a, a type of righteousness or a type of goodness that's qualitatively different than what we see observed by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We've seen this already because we've actually fast-forwarded, we've jumped ahead a bit, but in the next part of Jesus' sermon, Jesus lays out six examples where Jesus says in each, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he basically takes a, a line of Old Testament scripture and he then gives his kind of interpretation of it. He lays out that teaching, and these are very helpful for us because this is Jesus' way of teaching the Old Testament. 
And, and as we walk through these, we begin to kind of pick up how Jesus reads the Bible. And it's helpful as we learn to navigate, especially the Old Testament, to learn his approach to reading Scripture. For example, Jesus said, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, do not even look lustfully at a woman. Initially, it might sound like Jesus is kind of negating the original law, but that's not what he's doing. What Jesus is doing is drawing out the initial or the original intent of the law. So in do not commit adultery, Jesus goes beyond the rule, beneath the surface level behavior, and tells us what the rule was actually striving for or getting at. In this case, that there would be a profound respect for humanity, that we wouldn't treat other people like objects, especially the vulnerable, that there be this honoring of our sexuality and of the intimacy of our relationships. He's saying true righteousness doesn't just look like the absence of adultery. True righteousness is deeper and richer than that. Now, he does this in, in each of these six examples. We've walked through three of them already, uh, but let me give you another example where Jesus kind of reframes Old Testament teaching through what you might call a teachable moment. How many of you just love teachable moments, you know? Kids, you know, I know you love those moments where your mom or your dad kind of takes advantage of what they call a teachable moment. You know, usually it starts with kids, you know? This is why I always say, and fill in the blank, Right? Uh, that's maybe what I say and my wife says to our boys, but do you love that, kids, those teachable moments? Probably not so much. I don't think in this story I'm going to reference the person who is being instructed liked it either. But Jesus does this in Luke 13. One Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and he sees across the way a woman who'd been crippled, we're told, for 18 years. Imagine this stooped-over woman. And Jesus called her over, and he put his hands on her. By the way, I read that this week, and I go, oh, I miss human touch. Like, like Bonnie Henry in her announcement on Tuesday where she's like, I miss hugs. Can't you wait to hug? And she, was, she, went, she went on like a two-minute rant about hugs. It was pretty entertaining. But it says that Jesus touched this woman, and she straightened up, and she praised God. But check this out. The synagogue ruler who's observing all this was outraged and said, there are six days for work. You know, come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. <laughs> Crazy, right? This, you've got this beautiful miracle of restoration. It takes place and all this guy could see was the broken rule around Sabbath keeping. And we're told Jesus' answer was this. You hypocrites, this is Jesus being kind. You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? And so Jesus, by his words, and especially by his actions, he clarifies what Sabbath is all about, that, that the Old Testament commands on Sabbath-keeping were really about bringing freedom to the, those in bondage. 
bringing wholeness and, and healing for people. As, as he said in Mark 2, man was not made for the Sabbath, but, but the Sabbath was made for man. By the way, the response of the synagogue ruler could be my response or your response sometimes. Because it's the kind of thing that can happen whenever we get off track and kind of make rules the center of our faith. You know what the first thing to go is when we make rules the center of our faith? Love. Rules become more important than people. This happens, right? It, it, it happens in all kinds of communities. It happens in church. And so Jesus helps us see by his life and his reading of Scripture what true goodness or what true righteousness really looks like. Because you're, you, you read the Ten Commandments and uh, you, you, you get to say, thou shalt not murder, and you go, oh, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> you know, check. At least I hope you can go check on that one. I'm not a murderer. <laughs> I'm okay. But here's the thing. You can check that, but you can have a heart that's full of anger and spite and bitterness. And you can have all that kind of poison going on in your heart and yet still keep the command. I don't know about you, but I find it easier to tithe on my finances. I find it easier to avoid getting drunk, or to avoid going to strip bars, than I do in avoid being you know, resentful and bitter towards someone that hurts me. I, I once went a whole year, amazingly enough, a whole year without coffee without drinking coffee, but doing that is easier than curbing a critical or a, an ungrateful spirit. Jesus is saying rule-keeping isn't enough. He's saying if you want to get in on the kingdom of God, you can't just read the Bible and obey its commands. You need the kingdom of God to actually radically transform you at the heart level so that you can eventually become the kind of person who's Driving motivation is love. So here's the point. We actually need to learn to read Scripture with the same posture and the same attitude and the same humility that we see in Jesus. I'd say this. Love for God and love for others is really the, the primary interpretive key to understanding all of the commandments. Now, I want to wrap up with just a couple thoughts where we've come so far. Uh, Jesus comes, and he doesn't chuck out the Bible, okay? That's, that's kind of important. Instead, he reminds us that all Scripture finds its fulfillment in him, that, that he's kind of the key, that we've got to look to him if we're going to understand the, the rest of the Bible. And then he gives us examples of how to read and interpret and follow the Bible in such a way as to get at the kind of righteous life, the kind of goodness and, and the kind of living that gets beyond surface-level behavior and rule-keeping to get to the heart level, transforming our hearts towards love and righteousness. Next week, I, I, we're going to do part two on this one because it's just such a biggie. Next Sunday, we'll look at a bunch of ways to, uh, more ways to approach the Bible like Jesus, and we'll get real practical, and we'll look at some of the interesting laws that we find in places like the fascinating book of Leviticus, Right? which have all these laws around everything from mildew in our homes to not sleeping around with our relatives. 
We'll consider how we discern what we keep from the Old Testament in terms of honoring the law and what we might be freed to set aside in light of Christ. Whole seminary courses are taught on this, by the way, and we're going to try and give you a taste in kind of one Sunday next week, but I hope we'll get some guidance as we seek to better understand and interpret and apply Scripture and honor Scripture, especially from Jesus' perspective. Now, why does this all matter so much? Because as Jesus clearly seems to say here, our approach to Scripture seems to directly impact our, our experience or lack thereof of the kingdom of God. In fact, God has given us his laws so that we would not be in bondage, but that we would live in true freedom. Notice Deuteronomy 5.33, where Moses says, Walk in all the way that the Lord God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper. God says, In all the ways I have commanded you. <laughs> not, not so that you'll, you'll shrivel up and die and live a smaller life, but that you'll actually live this large life so that you'll prosper and flourish according to how you were made, according to your maker's design. Jesus said that, that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen? James says the perfect law is the law of liberty and freedom. Here's the other thing. It's my last thought. <laughs> A lot of people like Jesus. They're interested in Jesus. They respect Jesus. I'd call them fans of Jesus. You know, they, they like his message of love. They, they like his sacrifice that he did on the cross. They, they like his heart for people. But Jesus' invitation to us is, is not for us to become his admirers or fans. He invites us to become his followers. He says, come follow me. And I think when it comes to Scripture and, and just even our difficulty with Scripture, somehow we have to decide, are we going to follow Jesus wherever he leads? Even when he leads us in places I don't want to go or in ways that are going against the flow of our culture? Are, are we simply going to kind of be carried along by, by what the world says and let the world define our lives, or are our lives going to be defined by Jesus and by what he says is true? Are we going to just simply do what we're learning in school to do, and that's going to be, you know, sort of our instruction for life? Are we actually going to pay attention to the words of Jesus and his interpretation of life and how he wants to lead us into the good life? Are we willing to follow him? And, and are we willing to, you know, obey his word? You know, as, as we, we follow Jesus, we find that he doesn't come to abolish the law because God's laws are right for human life and they're right for your life. Rather, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And get this, folks, this is the most amazing news. He came to fulfill them in you. You're his fulfillment of the law and prophets in you. And so it means we come to his word as interpreted by Jesus with respect and trust and willingness to sit under that authority. Follow me, Jesus says, into my teachings. 
and I will lead you into the best kind of life. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Kevin's going to come and lead us in prayer.